And welcome to 1202, the Human Factors podcast. And in this episode, we're exploring deeper into the rail domain, and in particular, rail investigations. But before that, the other week um, was HFES conference. Uh, and in our sister channel, Human Factors Cast, Nick Rome and I completed the longest live stream I've ever participated in. Being not one of the cool kids, then um, live streaming isn't really my thing, except, except for what we do with the podcasting. But this was a fascinating experience because Nick was out in Atlanta on site, and I got to sit here in the UK. So I think I was slightly done um, somewhere along the line, but um, it was fantastic to have because we were um, live streaming for nearly 12 hours. Um, so I got very comfortable. I now have much greater appreciation for those people who do things like live news commentary um, and more about the need to ad lib and fill while the various challenges present themselves, such as technical challenges, people not turning up or not turning up when they're meant to or where they're meant to. Um, but it was fantastic to be able to talk some to a whole bunch of people, including friends of the podcast, such as Professor Paul Salmon and Chris Reed, who is now the immediate past president of HFES. And we also made some new friends, such as like Caroline Sumrich, the new president of HFES, Christy Harper, Rose Figueroa and Jules Tripp, to name but a few. And hopefully they'll be coming on to this podcast to give us some of their, their insights at some point in the future. So I encourage you all to, after this episode, don't stop now, head over to Human Factors Cast after, after you've listened to this episode to um, hear about that. Also, and I'm going to be playing with some elements of visuals, so for those of you who just listen to audio, it's going to be a bit lost, but the um, call for submissions for EHF 2023 is now open, and the CIHF is looking for your input. For those of you watching rather than listening, you, there is the advert on the on the screen, and I will also put up the um, um, put up the conference, um, the, the website address um, for submissions. So we're looking for um, basically... A whole load of stuff. You have until the first of uh, so until the um, until December to get your uh, two page submission. In. That's it, two pages. Um, and they look for a variety of input from your current research, your uh, the, the latest example of best practice, or interesting case studies, and anything else in between. So go to that website, conference.ergonomics.org.uk, for more details. And that is, if I'm honest, a really nice segue into our next guest, um, into our guest today. She's a friend of the podcast already, as, you, um, as you've heard from, you'll have heard from her in May when she gave us her perspective on EHF 2022. And she'll be continuing that involvement in 2023. And I'm, of course, talking about Becky Charles. Despite the amount of work she does around EHF and volunteering for the CIHF in general, she also has time to squeeze in a day job. And that is what I'm really, really keen to learn about today. So... Without further ado, Becky, welcome and thank you for taking the time to be with us for this episode. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. So before we get into the real investigation side of, of, of what you do, could, I'd love to find out a bit more about you and, and your background. Because as I said, you do, you've been involved and you're almost like a, a key part of the um, the ergonomics environment, the ergonomics world here. Um, here. So could you tell us where you're at now? What, you know, what is your current role and what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Sure. So at the moment, I work for the Rail Accident Investigation Branch, and I'm a Rail Accident Investigator. Um, so that's what I do day to day. And I've been here for about two years now. Cool. So feet prop you under the table. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you're there now, but as you've slightly alluded to there, you've um, you've been involved with human factors and ergonomics for, for quite a while. Where was the starting point? Why? How did you get involved in human factors in the first place? Oh, 
So it was a total accident. <laughs> I um, left school after my A-levels and decided that I wanted to do a apprenticeship. So I got a apprenticeship, an engineering apprenticeship, actually, at uh, Bentley Motors in Crewe. Cool. So that was, what, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago now. I know I don't look old enough. Yeah, yeah, I'm just uh, yeah, so, <laughs> Over 20 years ago. And while I was there, it was really interesting um, doing all the engineering side and the more practical side of things. But I also got really... Um, uh, it was at the time when Rolls-Royce and Bentley uh, were splitting off. Um, so it was Rolls-Royce, Bentley, and then Rolls-Royce got um, sent off separately and then uh, Bentley got bought by Volkswagen. So it was a really exciting time when I was there. It's around 2001. And uh, it was getting more sort of process driven rather than more having sort of artisans making the things and doing sort of uh, three or four cars a week. It was turning into hundreds of cars a week. So it was that really interesting transition uh, between making things uh, mass-produced, I guess, um, in a factory sense and bringing in all this new technology. And I got really interested in how people did things and how people carried out their jobs um, and just got really interested in that sort of side of things. The people that did that when I was at Bentley were the manufacturing engineers. Okay. And at that point, I didn't, I didn't know what ergonomics was. Um, I knew that we had ergonomic screwdrivers and ergonomic chairs um, but that's about it. And we had a tick box uh, to say, is this process ergonomic um, on all of our process things? Um, but that was about it. And so I um, decided to leave there after I'd finished my apprenticeship and go and do manufacturing engineering at Loughborough University, because that's what I thought was the job that I wanted to do. They were the people that I really wanted to do. So uh, I went there um, soon discovered that it was uh, mechanical engineering and it wasn't really what I wanted to do at all um but fortuitously I the night that I was leaving because I dropped out of the course it was just too hard I couldn't do it it wasn't what I wanted to do and um I was going home it was sort of Christmas time and I was leaving um and I was in the student union bar and I was chatting to someone who I still know Lee Lee grew give him a shout out here it's all his fault I'll blame him <laughs> He gets um, <laughs> I was chatting to him and sort of saying, oh, you know, I, 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 it's such a shame. I wanted to do this course. And he was like, well, what is it you wanted to do? And I was like, well, I wanted to do it where we're thinking about people and designing for people and thinking about their needs and, you know, how they do stuff and, and how we can make it easier. And he's like, that sounds like my course. Um, and I said, well, what's your course? And he said, oh, it's human factors and ergonomics. And I said, well, what the hell is human factors and ergonomics? <laughs> and he said, well, it's exactly what you've just described. Um, so the rest is history, as they say. And I enrolled and started the Loughborough course the following year and did the undergrad course. I mean, that's so, so fascinating because there is so many um, people who uh, we talk to on day-to-day -day basis who've either never heard of human factors or just stumbled across it there there isn't that piece in in schools where you know you grow up wanting to be an ergonomist you know no. you're, you're going to be an astronaut or a train driver or a nurse or a doctor and it's it, there is an element there about what can we do about that but there must have been a part then when you were going through because to because to quit a, a course like that that's that's not a simple decision that's that that's that's almost heart-wrenching to a certain extent because you um what was your thought process around that? Was it something that was um, quite quick to come to? You just realised you were in the wrong place and you do something different? Or was, was it a long, drawn-out process? 
No, it was quite, to be honest, Barry, it was really quite quick that I was sat in all of these sort of maths lectures going, oh my God, what the hell am I what doing here? That do for me, yeah. No, I see what yeah. you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God, I, I'm not with my people. I don't really know what I'm doing here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I, I tried and um, I sort of went to meet with the tutors and, and sort of see what was coming up in terms of topics and things like that. And But it, it just wasn't the content that I'd envisaged. And I guess it's a bit easier now that, you know, we've got the internet yeah. <laughs> and it's easier to sort of search for things and we've got social media and things like that. It's easier to chat to people who are actually there. I think looking back now, I was very unprepared like I just decided that because these people that were doing the job that I wanted to do were manufacturing engineers at Bentley, it was a very sort of narrow view um, mm -hmm. at the time. And I think it is getting, it's getting easier now. Uh, we're, you know, we're more worldly. We can find things out easier. Um, you know, we can chat to people more easily. Um, uh, and I think it would be very different now and just, sort of picking up on your comment that you've just made like the fact that ergonomics human factors isn't taught in schools and things like that as a standalone topic we're getting it a lot more integrated into like cdt lessons uh you know even it lessons things like that at school so we're winning we're, we're getting there bit by bit and you know more people have heard of ergonomics and human factors now than they certainly had 20 years ago including myself which oh i'd be relieved to know yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm very much in the same position. When I first started, I had no idea what it, all, it was until somebody mm. sort of pointed it out. So you've now got a, um, a nice shiny degree uh, mm -hmm. in, in human factors. What's been the career path since then? Where, where, what's, what's been your, your trail of amazement or destruction, depending on which way, which way you want to look at it? I wonder what you were going to say then. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a healthy combination of both, to be yeah. honest. Um, and I would challenge you to find anyone who couldn't honestly say that. Um, <laughs> yep, I'm there. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I left my degree and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And again, it was kind of fortuitous that my husband um, was working at Nottingham University at the time and knew Sarah Sharples um, and was chatting to her um, a various point and sort of said that oh my my wife is um just finishing her degree and she went oh you know we've got some phd opportunities coming up at nottingham so i went to chat to her i didn't have any particularly interest in rail at that point but i just happened to um go and have a chat and it was a rail um phd um so i went and chatted to the lovely people at network rail discovered that this would be an amazing thing to do um, and did my PhD as a combination with Network Rail and uh, University of Nottingham. So did that for sort of four years and ended up working for Network Rail. So my PhD was looking at basically how people make decisions in the safety critical environments and how we can support that with technology. Mm -hmm. um, so bearing in mind, again, this was sort of 10, 12 years ago. Um, so everything's moved on considerably um, since then. Um, but it was this sort of um, concept of cognitive offloading. So can we automate um, things that don't involve people making using their experience and their knowledge to make decisions? So I was looking particularly at how we manage stations, how we manage train stations and how signalers manage train stations and things like simple decisions such as 
can that train fit in that platform? If we could have technology saying, uh -uh, that won't fit in there, then people can then use their capacity to make more important decisions and things like that. Um, so continued working there. Um, and then I got a job at Cranfield University and worked there for a while um, as a lecturer. Um, it's more aviation based. Um, and one thing I noticed about the aviation sector, and I'm sure you know, is that there's a lot less low hanging fruit um, than there is in rail. And I guess I, I missed that. I missed having that sort of grassroots kind of, we've got some really fundamental issues that we need to kind of sort out in rail. And I think I missed that. And it's also there that I got really interested in um, accident investigation because they've got the group there mm -hmm. um, headed up by um, Graham Braithwaite over there and got really interested in that. And then just happened to see a job advertised at the Rail Safety and Standards Board uh, where they're after someone who had a bit of rail experience and a bit of accident investigation experience. Um, so I got the job there and just sort of slotted in. So all of these things have been quite fortuitous. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I saw the job advertised here. Um, it's always something I've wanted to do. Um, it's always a job I've kind of, you know, had had there saying, oh, I want to do that one day. And when the job came up and it specifically said we're after human factors people, I thought I'm going to have to give it a bash, really. So, you, so you've 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 achieved the pinnacle of what you wanted to do. You've got you've got the target. All downhill from here. Yes. <laughs> There's almost a question there about where do, where do you then go next? Yeah. But you possibly don't want to answer that. The, no. um, but okay, let's stick with the um, with the rail investigation. Then we're going to take a quick break. Then if we come come back, and I want to dig more into um, actually what what investigation in rail looks like. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. And we're here talking with Becky Charles about human factors involvement in rail investigations. So, Becky, I guess start from the top. Then, what what sort of events do you get involved with? What's what, what's your um, what's the breadth of things you can do? Okay, so the rail accident investigation branch. Just to take a, a step back a little a little bit further, um, we were actually um, we came to fruition in two thousand and five, and it was following the Labrook Grove incident mm -hmm. in nineteen ninety nine. Um, so it was decided that we needed a independent rail accident investigation body, similar to the air accident investigation branch and the marine accident investigation branch that was already in existence. So we're totally independent, as independent as we can be, and we're all about safety learning. So although we work closely with Network Rail, the ORR, um, you know, RSSB, we're not associated with them. Okay. So we're 100% um, not for blame. We're about safety learning. Um, and since we were, you know, um, developed, is that the word? I can't get my words out today, Barry. <laughs> since, we, uh, since we opened or began our work in 2005, uh, we've now completed over 500 investigations or safety bulletins or digests. 
Um, and the things that we get involved in are anything to do with a moving train. So we don't get involved in anything like slips, trips and falls at stations or anything like that. Um, but we'll get involved in anything that involves a fatality or anything that involves serious injury of more than five people or anything that has, you know, a lot of monetary damage. Um, I think it's around uh, two million euros. So anything like that will get involved in um, automatically. Um, but as we're interested in safety learning, uh, it's up to us really what we investigate beyond that. Um, so anything that we think could provide valuable learning to the industry, we will investigate further um, and make recommendations on industry to improve safety. So you've got, you're, you're part of a team. Are you all later practitioners or do you have a range of disciplines involved? No. So um, it's really interesting. So we all come in. There's, um, I think there's 22 inspectors at the moment. So we're, we have a team in Derby and we have a team also down here in Farnborough. Um, so the idea behind that is that we can be deployable in most of the country within sort of 30 minutes. But we all come in to the branch with our own specialisms. Right. Um, so at the moment, there's three of us that are particularly or specifically HF. But we, you know, we have rail ops experts. We have uh, track experts. We have level crossing engineers, signaling engineers, you know, uh, derailment experts. All of these people come in with... Uh, a lot of experience behind them in their own areas and then we're all put through a very rigorous training program of around um 18 months to two years where we're all sort of brought up to a similar level so the idea is that we're all kind of trained in everything because if a job comes in and i'm on call uh you know it could be a a derailment or something like that it won't necessarily be a human factors job so we all need to be able to hold our own on site when we go out um, so that's the idea behind that and then when we're investigating then we call upon all of these different um, specialisms that we've got in the branch so you're you're you've literally almost got the like the bleeper type approach there's 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 an incident that's going to um, need you and you need to be there within a certain period of time yeah yeah right. so we're all um, we're all on calls of one week in three right um, and if an incident comes in and it's deemed to be um, that we have to deploy to it, um, then yeah, we'll get in the van and we'll go and, and we'll investigate it. Quite a lot of our investigations are sort of what we call sort of slow deployments. Mm -hmm. um, so if something happens, we might get deployed the following day um, to go and gather evidence and things like that. Um, but the more serious incidents like the Salisbury, um, things like that, then we will get deployed um, pretty instantly for those sorts of things. So I've just got an image of you now in your car, putting the the blue light on the top. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, coming through. Sadly, we don't have a flashing light, but you know. Oh, I, I think you should do that. Um, so you mentioned the other um, investigative branches, the air and the maritime. Do you liaise with them at all? Share best practice? Is that is that something, or are you so different actually that um, that you don't do that? No, absolutely. And I was um, a few weeks ago. I did a. Uh, it was a podcast like webinar I think for the IHS where I actually presented um, with human factors practitioners from the air and marine branches so Will and Lisa so we do work together we have a human factors uh, group so we share best practice um, 
things like that. So yeah, we do work with them really closely, actually, especially the human factor side. Human factors people have a way of doing that. I think the um, just just being able to gel together, no matter what the uh, what, what the breadth of it is. Yeah. When you, I guess, from, coming from a human factors perspective, we're always trying to get involved uh, before anything happens and to try and make things safer there. So, really deploying at this point, is it not just a bit late? Is it what can we actually learn after the fact? Yeah, absolutely. I do get asked this question all the time. Like, isn't it a bit pointless? But we are—we're a reactive organisation. That's 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 the point of us. Something happens and we react and we go and we learn from it. Um, so no, I mean we've made countless recommendations on industry that have been um, taken up and acted upon, and you know the industry is getting safer. Um, so no, I think there's a lot we can learn from incidents. And don't forget, we also investigate sort of near misses um, and minor incidents as well, because there is that element of safety learning. So it's the what if incidents. And, you know, um, we say this all the time that, you know, the end thing isn't necessarily, there's so many more decisions that have happened prior to that one decision that has resulted in an incident or an accident or a fatality or something like that so there's always something we can learn from any of these incidents um but yeah i totally get totally get your point <laughs> no but it is interesting though isn't it because you're right there's you almost don't want it's tragic whatever's happened but you don't want to let that um that all go to waste you know no. there is clearly as you say there's there's things that have happened and therefore if you don't it, it's almost it would make the incident doubly worse if you didn't actually try and get as much learning from that as we mm. uh, as you possibly could so when you've done that investigation mm. um what happens then you, you produce some nice reports do they just mm. go onto a bookshelf somewhere or do, do people actually uh, a novel idea do people actually use them yeah yeah they do so um as i alluded to there we we write our report um and then it goes out to industry it goes for consultation and then we actually produce recommendations um so i think it's very unusual or um yeah i can't actually say for sure but i don't think we've ever produced a report that hasn't had any recommendations and these are made to industry um so to different organizations manufacturers you know things like that um so these recommendations are made and then they're actually tracked on our website um, so anyone can log on to our website, reib.gov.uk, and have a look at the kind of recommendations that we make on industry and see actually what has happened and what has, what has occurred as a, as, a, you know, as a result of those recommendations. So I, was, I was quite impressed, actually, because if you go and look on the website, a lot of the, the communications there, um, that, you know, I don't want to say nothing's hidden in, in a way, but nothing seems to be hidden in that, um, you know, there was obviously a, a recent incident up at Carlisle and already there was some um, stuff out on, the, on there. So clearly there's a, a, um, a culture of openness um, and, and about almost reporting what you can, when you can. Is that, is that something that you, uh, that you are actively pushed to do um, or, is it so, or is it just part of the process? It's part of our process and it's part of our legislation, you know, we're there to provide the safety learning. So we're open and transparent as far as we can be. Um, and I was actually up in Carlisle. I was deployed up to Carlisle, actually. Um, 
And it's this constant, like you're feeding back to senior management, not me personally, but the LI who was on site, was constantly feeding back to the senior management team and letting them know what was happening and who was on site. And, you know, it is very dynamic when when things like that do happen. And we are very keen to get something out as soon as we possibly can when we know that we've got some some very solid, solid facts to report. I guess that's got to be a very fine line, hasn't it? Because you don't want to push stuff out too early, mm. um, just in case it's wrong or it gives you the wrong end of the stick or something like that. But uh, but no, the, the I thought the, the color thing was quite fortuitous because that's, that's where I grew up. So um, yeah. um, Northern lad, really, you just wouldn't, just couldn't tell. Um, so obviously you, you've, you've been around the rail industry for um, for, for quite a while. Um, mm. What's your, I guess, from with what you're doing at the moment, what's the biggest area of interest from a human factors perspective that you're looking at at the moment? Oh, yeah. Um, I guess from the branches point of view, um, and you can read all about these kind of things in our annual reports and on the website, um, like we've already said, but there's still a lot of things that we can learn around track worker safety and keeping people safe when they're working on the railway. Um, there's a lot of human factors issues there. Um, to do with teamwork, you know, following instructions, how people are briefed on site, you know, all these different things that we can learn. Um, and also there's still a lot of um, desert level crossings and there's a lot of things we can learn there around signage and audible alarms and visual alarms and things like that that we can that we can learn from and that we can feed back in, into the rail industry. So, yeah, there is a lot going on, but I'd say that they are two of the the sort of key topics that unfortunately um, keep us keep us busy. Yeah. So taking that step wider then and looking at the the, the whole of the the rail industry, as, as said, you've you've been around it for um, for a couple of years. Um, mm. Is there developments in the in that wider industry that you're looking forward to seeing coming into play? Ooh. Again, interesting question. Um, so I guess there is, um, you know, technological developments, just saying on about like the the level crossings and things like that, that there is technological developments coming in. Uh, we've got electrification of lines um, throughout the country. We've got this thing rumbling on with uh, climate change that the industry is very keen uh, to kind of make rail um, a very green way of traveling. Um, I think we're trying to get more people back onto using railways since COVID because um, it's still not back up um, to the travelling that it was. So there are interesting developments there and, and how we manage that as an industry going forward, I think. So there's a lot of interesting things um, on the horizon and coming up. Cool. Um, well, thank you for that. What we're going to do is take a, another quick break and then we're going to get into the, the final three questions. Before Barry gets to the final three, my name's Nick Rome. Let me tell you about this. Technology in our world is evolving at a phenomenal pace. And keeping up with what that means in the human factors world can be challenging. That's where Human Factors Cast comes in. Human Factors Cast is a weekly podcast that highlights and breaks down stories that are chosen by you, the human factors community. Each week, a panel made up of human factors practitioners, UX specialists, and engineers sit down to discuss a weekly dose of knowledge that keeps you up to date with the latest areas of interest. Buttons in cars are safer and quicker to use than touchscreen. A prototype 
just achieved a major milestone that actually fits the description of a flying car. The show provides perspective based on experiences from different domains and different industries. We even cover some of the hottest conferences in the field. On this episode, we're recapping EHF, Ergonomics and Human Factors Conference, Neuroergonomics Conference, Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, uh, UXPA International, the International Symposium on Human Factors and Ergonomics in Healthcare. Join me, Nick Rome. And me, Barry Kirby. Every Friday morning when Human Factors Cast drops on YouTube and your favorite podcast directory. And remember, it, it depends. depends. Well, that makes me giggle. Watch a struggle. says, well, no, that's the first time we've included um, the Human Factors Cast um, advert in here. So, um, yeah, that just makes me laugh. Um, so, the final three questions. We try and ask these three questions to everybody, except for the fact that um, the eagle-eyed or eagle-eared, I guess, um, listeners, stroke watchers, will see that I've actually changed one of the questions. Um, but we'll, that, that's fine. Nobody else will notice. Um, so, Becky, do you have a book or a paper? I have got a book behind me that I use almost like a Bible uh, whenever I'm, particularly if I'm doing sort of um, applied stuff or trial stuff. I, you know, it, it's, it's just the go-to piece. But do you have a book or a paper that you go go back to repeatedly, be it a technical or even a fiction book? Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's probably the same one, I'm betting, as, as yours. It's the Human Factors Methods book, the Neville Stanton one. <laughs> yeah, that one, that that blue one there. Uh, yeah. It is well-thumbed. It is on my desk uh permanently i've got a couple of copies i've got one at work and i've got one at home <laughs> um but yeah it's brilliant anything like that where it's just a quick reference guide and you can sort of double check your thinking as well i think so you're like i'm sure there's a method for that but i mean there's so many human factors methods out there now which yeah. is brilliant and it's just great to have that physical book that you can just flick through um but the other ones that i use quite a lot are it's actually um a bunch of proceedings Okay. from the rail human factors conferences but they're brilliant um and i've got again two or three just hard copies but um they're brilliant for sort of double checking things and there's such a wide array of topics in there that you can go oh you know i, I want to know about this and someone's written something about it or referenced a paper about it so i find them really useful as well so yeah i think they're the, they're the ones that are uh, on my bookshelf and well used so if you could you go back just a couple of years, obviously. Um, what advice would you give your younger self if you knew what you knew, knew now? You go back to any point in back in time. What what would what would a sage piece of advice that you'll give yourself be? I would say it sounds really corny, but I I think it is a just have some sort of level of self belief that everything will work out in the end, um, and do things that you enjoy and not things that you think you should do to sort of please people I think that's why I mean it worked out fortuitously for me in the end but I think I went into engineering because I thought that's what I should do my dad was an engineer my brother was an engineer and I kind of thought that that's the path that I should take um so I was kind of pushed into that a little bit or felt that I should have but um um, I mean, it's all worked out all right in the end, but I often think that I probably should have done something a bit more artistic or, you know, something like that. But yeah, just just have some self-belief and do something you enjoy, I think. So final one then. What is one thing that if, if, if there was one thing that you were to be remembered for, what would it be? Professionally. 
<laughs> remembered for stuff, st stuff that we can say on a PG podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as you said at the beginning, I, I've been involved in the IHF a lot, um, sort of for the past 10, 12 years. And um, that's where I've made most of my contacts, really. And I think I'd like to be remembered as someone who is, you know, and helpful, someone who's helpful, someone who's helped people get their own ergonomics and human factors careers off the ground, um, been a sort of useful mentor. Uh, and I think more sort of that area, I'm not on about changing the world or, you know, discovering anything or coming up with some, you know, brand new method. I just want to be remembered as someone who's nice, someone who's nice and helpful and, and pretty all right at their job. I think that'll do me. And I think you put, you achieved that very well, even when you're chivying us through conferences and saying, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on, in you go, two breaks over. You yeah. do it in such a nice way. <laughs> Becky, that's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you ever so much for, for sharing that time to give us the insights into, into what you're doing. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm just Rebecca Charles on there. Uh, there's not many Rebecca Charleses who are accident investigators, so you should be able to find me quite easily on there. <laughs> So that's brilliant. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you found it interesting, then please do leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to it. It really, really does make a difference. And do share with your friends and colleagues, either face-to-face -face or on social media. And that's it for this, this week's episode. And uh, we shall see you all on the next one. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human, the Human Factors, Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next See time. You next and time. remember, it's more than just common sense.